Good morning and welcome back. Um, just wanted to take a moment and uh, correct my neglect earlier to uh, thank our court personnel and recognize them for being here. Our assistant clerk of court, Father McFarland, and our court marshal, Richard Rimelard, thank you for your assistance. Um, I think the um, parties heard us earlier, but with the clock, and if we have questions, if you've got a little bit of a hot bench, we won't be as, as tight on it, but um, if the appellant is ready, we're, we're ready to hear from you. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Chris Hoff, and I represent the plaintiff appellant, Carl Miller. Uh, before I get, begin, I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, if I may. Yes, sir, thank you. Thank you. My client, Carl Miller's home in Wilmington, uh, near Wrightsville Beach, was severely damaged uh, by wind and rain during Hurricane Florence in late September 2018. More than four years later, the home remains uninhabitable uh, because the defendant, FLE, uh, UPC, has refused to honor its obligations under Mr. Miller's homeowner's insurance policy. Um, and UPC has known since um, less than two months after the storm passed uh, that Mr. Miller's home was uninhabitable, and that's in the um, UPC's own claims notes. That was uh, an entry uh, from uh, its uh, second adjuster that they sent out named James Starrett, and that's it. Um, the uh, record supplement, page 26. Um, Mr. Miller brought suit against UPC in an attempt to um, be able to recover funds to, to fix his house. And um, unfortunately for Mr. Miller, the Superior Court granted summary judgment to UPC on both of Mr. Miller's claims, his breach of the policy claim, breach of contract, and on his unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. Um, and the, the, the Superior Court did so on three grounds. and. Um, submit that all three grounds were in error. And I'd first turn to the, uh, the, the first basis for summary judgment, which was that uh, Mr. Miller did not submit to a pre-suit examination under oath, or an EUO as it's called, um, as required by the policy. And um, before I discuss this issue, I'll just say that the policy does require the, the insured to sit for an EUO, and Mr. Miller did not sit for an EUO before filing suit. And just so I'm clear on, on this one fact that was kind of lingering, and I wasn't sure because the appellee talked about it a little bit about calling the, the representative, sending emails, talking to this person that it kind of decided to serve as an intermediary. There's not any dispute from Mr. Miller that he was aware of the request, correct? My, I was not involved in the trial court, but my reading of the record is that Mr. Miller was aware, if not directly, then through intermediary Authorized agents of his, at least. Yes, Your Honor. And um, so, it, it, at a minimum, that's not uh, anything that's in dispute for us to consider on appeal. It's, we can consider this as he had knowledge, what do we do about it? Correct, okay. Your Honor. Thank you. So, our argument is that both the language of the policy and North Carolina common law require that UPC, in order to take advantage of this condition of compliance that's in the policy, has to show that it was prejudiced, that it was, that its investigation was prejudiced by Mr. Miller's failure to sit for an examination under oath before filing suit. So first, just briefly looking at the language of the policy, that's section one, um, under duties of law, section 1C, um, and this is in the documentary exhibits at page 
238, and I'm going to look at page 240 in a second. Um, duties of loss, in case of a loss to covered property, we have no duty to provide coverage under this policy if the failure to comply with the following duties is prejudicial to us. And then one of the enumerated duties is submit to an examination under oath. So the, that duties of loss section specifically says that, it, that UPC can avoid coverage only to the extent that failure to sit, sit for an examination under oath is prejudicial to UPC. So a couple subsections later, sec, subsection 1H of the policy, that's it, documentary exhibit 240, states no action can be brought against us unless there has been full compliance with all of the terms under section 1 of this policy. And that includes section 1C, which includes the prejudice requirement and the EUA requirement. So, you know, it's a little, frankly, I've, I've looked at this a lot, and, I, you know, these, this language is, is somewhat difficult to reconcile because the, the full compliance in section 1H references back to the prejudice in 1C, and then under that there's the you know, list of things, and it, which includes the EUO requirement. But I, I think you know, this was a summary judgment case, and as you know, cases cited in our brief on this issue, and section one, exclusions in insurance policies are disfavored under North Carolina law, and when an exclusionary clause is ambiguous, it must be strictly construed in favor of coverage. So I would submit that at summary judgment, this is an ambiguous clause and that you know, it, it, it's hard to make sense of it and that prejudice should be required under the language of the policy in order for UPC to avoid coverage. Let, let me just talk real, real quick about the, the case law on this issue and, and kind of see if I understand you, your take and your argument. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but your position is that even though we have this language from Feinberg um, that that doesn't control our decision because Henderson um, carries more authority than Feinberg does and therefore we must disregard or set aside Feinberg? Is, is, that, is that your argument? I, I know, you know, obviously whatever they say across the street guides more than what we say here for our decisions if there is a conflict, but with Feinberg coming 30, 33 years after Henderson, you know, isn't there some assumption that this court was, was taking Henderson into account or there's been changes in the language between these insurance policies over the years and this materiality doesn't matter anymore? How do we even try to reconcile Feinberg and Henderson and, and, and say that Feinberg's not, you know, going to foreclose your case, at least in this court? Sure, Your Honor. Um, to, to address your question, um, the Supreme Court, our Supreme Court decided Henderson in 1961 which involved um, misstatements in violation of a cooperation clause. The Supreme Court said that um, it did not void the policy unless they were material and prejudicial. 20 years later, in 1981, the uh, Supreme Court issued a decision in Great American Insurance Company versus C.G. Tate Construction and extended that reasoning from Henderson and expressly rejected a long-standing strict contractual approach to, to interpreting cooperation clauses in insurance policies. And um, Great American, the 1981 Supreme Court case, um, involved a, a notice provision, whether the, the insured actually gave notice at all uh, to the uh, insurance company about a, about a potential claim. And the court looked at the bargaining power between the parties, 
insured had no bargaining power and the rule that they set forth that the insurance company had to um, had the burden of proof to show that it was materially prejudiced before it could take advantage of the cooperation clause or the failure and in the insured's um, cooperation with, with that clause. Um, it fulfilled the reasonable expectations of the insured while protecting the interest of the insurance company. And um, there are two additional cases where this court looked at similar um, cooperation clauses or conditions precedent and policies, and those are um, in the, the Branch v. Travelers Indemnity case, which is from 1988, and also the Bontech v. Scottsdale Insurance case, which is 2005, and both Branch and Bontech were, um, summary, summary judgment had been granted in the trial court for the insurance company, and in both cases, um, in Branch, the, this court relied on Great American, and in Bontech, this court relied uh, mostly on Henderson, reversed uh, summary judgment um, and, and remanded um, for trial. And the, um, the, the Branch case involved uh, a policy requirement that the insurer um, obtain written consent. The insured obtain written consent from the insurer before settling a claim against an uninsured motorist. And in Bontech, um, the court relying on Henderson uh, held that there was a common law prejudice requirement uh, regarding a policy provision prohibiting voluntary payments by the insured. And in the Bontech case, uh, the court stated, thus, in North Carolina, an insurer may not rely upon the breach of a consent to settlement, notice, or cooperation provision in order to relieve itself of liability to pay the claim. The insurer must demonstrate prejudice to its ability to instigate to investigate and defend the claim. Are those two are those two cases cited in the briefs or a memo of district I already? submitted okay. a memorandum of additional Perfect. authority Thank on you. I believe it was Groundhog's Day, yeah, February second, um, referencing both of those decisions. Thank you. And I apologize for not discussing them in the briefs because I do think they are relevant to this court's uh, review of the prejudice question. Um, and and Bontech was decided in 2005, which is the case I was just quoting. And that was um, well after uh, this court decided that the two EUO decisions, which were Baker in 91 and Feinberg in 94. And uh, just to further address your honor's question, uh, Judge Murphy, uh, that th there's no indication in either Baker or Feinberg, and I was unable to find the, the briefs, um, but neither Baker nor Feinberg addresses the prejudice question Sites, Henderson, Great American, or Branch, which had all been decided by that point, and there's no indication that the issue had even been raised. Um, and neither case, Feinberg cites Baker for authority, but Baker cites an Eastern District of North Carolina decision, and then it cites an earlier decision from the North Carolina Supreme Court in Chavis, which really the courts, the the plaintiff in that case, the insured, conceded that it was required to submit financial documentation um, to the insurance company, but the court ultimately decided that the insurance company's, the scope of their request for financial documentation exceeded the statutory and policy authority to obtain such information. So neither the Eastern District of North Carolina's case or Chavis really support any authority for the holding in Baker which was the strict contractual approach 
which had been rejected 10 years earlier by the Supreme Court in Great American. So skipping, skipping ahead a little bit, um, and, and assuming we were to agree with you that sort of in addition to the, the EUO requirement that there be a showing of, of prejudicial effect uh, to the insurer, um, why wouldn't the failure to sit down pre-suit for this EUO not be prejudicial uh, to an insurer who's trying to investigate the, the merits of, of a claim? Well, Your Honor, first I would say that the Supreme Court in Henderson said that questions of materiality and prejudice in connection with cooperation clauses are generally questions for the jury. Um, and the Supreme Court held the same in a, an earlier decision in the McClure case that's cited in our brief. Um, I would also say that uh, in, below, UPC didn't argue that they were prejudiced, even though this issue was also raised on summary judgment. And um, they do make that argument in their brief, but if you actually look at the citations, they're largely to UPC's outside counsel uh, um, attorney named Walt Rapp. He was deposed um, during the course of discovery, and um, Mr. Rapp said, when asked about um, what prejudice UPC suffered as a um, result of as Mr. Miller's failure to sit for an EUO, he says, there could have been all kinds of things that maybe Miller could have explained had he participated in the EUO. And that's at um, the Walter Rapp uh, transcript at Documentary Exhibit 894 to 95. And he also said with regards to um, any, uh, Mr. Miller's general cooperation with the investigation that he doesn't recall being told that Mr. Miller refused to answer questions. And he, and I quote, I don't want to say Miller wasn't helpful. And um, Rapp also said that he asked Mr. Miller for some documents during the course of his work on this case. And um, he said during his deposition, um, he doesn't recall exactly what was asked for or why one thing was asked for versus another thing versus another thing. Um, so with regards to, um, and, and UPC would have the burden of proof under this court's decisions and, or under the um, Supreme Court's decisions in Henderson and um, McClure on this issue. And I would submit that on summary judgment, um, if prejudice, if UPC was required to show prejudice, that they have not demonstrated prejudice based on um, what's cited in their brief. Um, with regards to the second basis for summary judgment, which was the false representation that Mr. Miller purportedly made to UPC, um, UPC had to demonstrate that there was no genuine issue of material fact as to the fact that whether this estimate was false, whether it was intentionally made, and whether it was material. Um, so all three, and any question on all, any genuine issue on, on any one of the three should send this back to the Superior Court. So um, this estimate, so. Well, it's the, sort of the opposite, isn't it? If, I mean, if, if, if there's no genuine issue of material fact as to any one of them, then, then summary judgment would be appropriate for the defendant. Isn't that right? These are all three requirements that UPC has to show that there were false, this is an affirmative defense that UPC has raised that there was a, that Mr. Miller made a false representation to UPC during the course of the investigation. And UPC has the, has to show that 
that the representation was, there was no genuine issue of material fact that was false, that it was intentionally made, and that it was material. Um, so this- well, There's not any doubt in, in the record that it was intentionally made in terms of it was passed on by your client to UPC as an attachment to an email, correct? It was actually in the body of an email. Okay. It was just like, typed up in an email. That's okay. correct. So my client had a contractor working for him, a fellow named Eric Hatfield, and this was right after the storm had passed, less than a month even. And um, my client was talking to Mr. Hatfield, got some kind of sometimes verbal estimates, just kind of a sense of what, how much it would cost to, to fix things on his property. And UPC, when less than two weeks had opened and closed this claim, my client was frustrated, and he wrote up this email um, estimate and um, sent it to Mr. Hatfield in an email and said, how's this look? I'm gonna send it to UPC, what do you think? Sent another email to Mr. Hatfield, said, I need to, I'm gonna, I need to send this to UPC, um, please give me any feedback, and um, there's nothing in the record showing that Hatfield responded, and uh, Mr. Miller went ahead and sent it on October 19th, 2018, and in the email it to UPC, the email contained all of Mr. Hatfield's contact information, and uh, I, I would submit here uh, that um, Mr. Miller said in his sworn affidavit, if I was, I quote, if I was trying to deceive anyone about the source of the data, I would not have included Hatfield's contact information or sent him a copy of the email if I did not believe he was on board with the estimates provided. So with regards to falsity, UPC argues that Hatfield actually charged Mr. Miller $3,500 for debris removal on his property, but that the email estimate estimated $30,000 for debris removal, which is almost 10 times as, as UPC points out in his brief. Um, there is no other evidence in the record that I'm aware of that Mr. Hatfield was the only one doing debris removal on the property that all of the debris removal that would need to be done as a result of the hurricane had been already done by Mr. Hatfield for $3,500. Um, so, you know, there, there's a question of fact here as to, you know, on, okay, it, it looks on its face like, you know, Mr. Miller inflated this amount, but there's no actual, you know, there's a genuine issue of material fact when you, when you drill down on it. And, Overall, Mr. Miller's estimate. What was, evidence is there that, that <clears throat> there were other contractors performing the debris removal that got you to $30,000? Well, this was right after the hurricane had passed. There's Mr. Uh, Hatfield submitted an affidavit um, on behalf of both. There's two affidavits from Mr. Hatfield in the record, one for submitted by UPC, one submitted by um, my client. And there's nowhere in his affidavit where he says that was all the debris removal that needed to be done. Um, he's kind of... Uh, stop short of kind of saying that the estimates were, he, he says that he provided Mr. Miller with some verbal estimates at time, that he may have provided some other estimates. Um, he doesn't say that the, the estimates are um, flat out wrong or false. So, there, so let me <clears throat> drill down a little bit. So there's, there's, there's no evidence of uh, an estimate for debris removal or estimates for debris removal that total $30,000? Not that I'm aware of, but um, that, that Hatfield estimate was for about $200,000 total, and there are estimates in the record, two, one from public adjuster Lori Bradshaw, starting at Documentary Exhibit 291, 
and one from James Scott Construction starting at Documentary Exhibit 532, and both are for over $600,000, more than three times more than this estimate that um, Mr. Miller put together. Now, is that related to, to <laughs> the multiple properties? I think I read something about multiple properties in here. Is that there, there are multiple properties that Mr. Miller owned at this location, but those two estimates that I just referenced are, the estimate are, is just for the property that was insured by UPC. With regards to the intent, again, I, you know, I would just say that if Mr. Miller was actually trying to commit fraud on UPC and create a fraudulent estimate in the name of Eric Hatfield, he would not have first sent it to Mr. Hatfield and then included Mr. Hatfield's contact information. Um, and UPC cites the McLam case uh, from this court in its brief at page 26 and indicates that fraudulent intent is not typically thrown, shown through direct evidence, but rather evidence of motive. And UPC says that the timing and nature of Miller's fraudulent uh, estimate illustrates his intent to uh, defraud UPC, but UPC is also admitting that it has no direct evidence of intent. And in that same case, McLam, um, the, the, this court said that fraudulent intent is a question for the jury, and the North Carolina Supreme Court in the Planters Bank v. Elverton case said that fraudulent intent is always a question for the jury. Um, you know, and Mr. Miller was clearly frustrated. This was right after the storm. He couldn't live in his house. He was trying to get um, UPC to, to honor its obligations under its policy. Is, it about, is fraudulent intent and material, is it coming down to that he's trying to convince them that what's in this is true or representing it, representing this prepared document as being an estimate from Eric Hatfield by putting Mr. Hatfield up there as licensed contractor and all his contact information um, where you usually see something as who it's being sent from and him list, listed it as a customer. So is it about what's in it or what it was purporting to be? Because if it's what it's purporting to be, I, I think you might be, be dead in the water, but if it's about what's in it, I'd like to hear more, well, I guess I want to hear more about why it's not about what it's purporting to be. Again, with regards to intent, I know Mr. Hadfield says in his affidavit that UPC submitted that he did not specifically authorize Mr. Miller sending this. But Mr. Miller did send it to Mr. Hatfield twice for his review, saying he was gonna, going to send this to UPC um, and with regards to the actual contents of the estimate again we have two lengthy estimates prepared um, that are for more than three times the amount and I I don't I guess if if the contents of the email itself or the the way it was presented made it appear that it was from Mr. Hatfield but it was sent to Mr. Hatfield for review before Mr. Miller sent it, it would seem to be me much more relevant and important. And really the question is, are the contents of the substance of what was sent, is that, was that intentionally fraudulent? Was Mr. Miller inflating the amounts set forth in this estimate significantly in order to defraud UPC? Was this insurance fraud? Because if it's Really, this is Mr. Miller preparing the estimate. 
putting Mr. Hatfield's name on it. Mr. Hatfield knows it's going to be sent. He knows the contents of it, says nothing about it. Mr. Miller sends it. It doesn't really seem relevant to me whether you know, it was specifically authorized by Mr. Hatfield. It seems much more relevant for this court's analysis whether the, the actual estimates were intentionally fraudulent or substantively fraudulent. Um, Maybe this is sort of my own circular logic, but why, why isn't all this evidence of, of prejudice to the insurer? And that, you know, if this was all just simply sort of a misunderstanding and we can sit down and document the numbers and where they came from and everything else, why, isn't, why, why doesn't that demonstrate prejudice for the failure to sit down, um, you know, for the EUO? Mr. Miller did participate in the investigation. He answered questions. He provided documents. UPC hasn't demonstrated how it was actually, its investigation was prejudiced by the failure of Mr. Miller to actually sit down for what's in substance a deposition. Mr. Miller was deposed you know, later in the process. After, after suits filed and now, now incurring litigation expense. Nothing has changed in terms of UPC's behavior, its claims decision. I mean, no, nothing has happened after the fact. I mean, UPC argues um, that there were delays, but, um, you know, Mr. Miller, as I said, he didn't sit for the EUO, but lots of information was provided, questions were answered, and there's no prejudice that I'm aware of that's reflected in the record that UPC actually suffered. And UPC knew about the, this kind of Hatfield uh, estimate issue as soon as February 13th, 2019, which was less than four months after the email was sent, it sent a reservation of rights letter to Mr. Miller raising this issue. Um, that's a documentary exhibit 1559. And UPC said the estimate wasn't deal detailed enough to really do anything with in that reservation of rights letter. And UPC says that they learned about this from the in independent adjuster who was present at the initial inspection of, of the home. Um, so UPC knew about this um, almost from the get-go. Um, and um, uh, with regards to, I see that I'm into my rebuttal time. Um, I, I would just like to briefly address the uh, motion to dismiss the appeal issue that's been raised and just, um, I think it's set forth in our response brief, uh, the, the UPC filed the motion to dismiss the appeal with regards to service of the, of the notice of appeal itself. No question that the notice was timely filed, um, but I, I just wanted to mention that um, there is an affidavit from trial counsel's legal assistant in the record supplement at pages 85 to 86, um, where she states that the notice of appeal was made, uh, was mailed, first class mail, uh, United States Postal Service to Mr. Derenbacher's office at a Lake Boone Trail address. It appears that uh, Mr. Derenbacher's firm moved to Glenwood Avenue address at some point during the course of this litigation, but I just wanted to note that as recently as August 2022, uh, the letterhead that Mr. Derenbacher used for his uh, cover letter to UPC's objections and amendments to the proposed record on appeal still um, had the Lake Moon Trail address on it, um, and that is Exhibit B to UPC's motion to dismiss the appeal. So um, there is evidence in the record, an affidavit, stating that the, the notice was mailed, and I think the other arguments as to the fact that proper service of a notice of appeal is not jurisdictional, um, the Levy-Wingett case relying on dogwood and that there's no 
the, the level of non-compliance here does not rise to substantial failure or gross violation of the appellate rules as Dodwood would require. So if the court doesn't have any further questions, I'll sit down. I may, I'm gonna have some, some questions for your colleague about that probably okay. first, but you may ask. Thank you, Your Honors. I don't want to get you too far off your kind of prepared outline and stuff, but I want to ask about this motion to dismiss. And, and I think one of the things that that's bugging me with your argument is there's a suggestion in there that we don't even really have a settled record in this case. Is, is that 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 honestly bothers me more than this notice thing? I, my my other judges may have different views on that, but the the lack of a settled record. Um, is concerning to me and what we're doing here without a settled record. Thank you, Your Honor. Again, may it please the court, I'm Chris Derenbacher here on behalf of United Property and Casualty. Judge Murphy, I'm happy to address your question. Uh, during the, uh, this was somewhat of a uh, out of the ordinary settlement of the record because the motion to dismiss the appeal based upon the failure to serve the notice of appeal was actually pending at the trial court. And we got an order from this court that said that the record on appeal would not be due until 14 days after the hearing of that motion for, on the notice of appeal, I mean, motion to dismiss the notice of appeal. Uh, plaintiff then served a proposed, even though we had not had an opportunity to have that heard, this was not Mr. Hoff's issue, but Mr. Voles, who's from Texas, was unable to make himself available to have that motion heard, which delayed the process. In the meantime, Mr. Hoff got involved and he served upon me a proposed record on appeal. I served objections, I gave objections back, asked that additional items be added to it, and also in the process said I would like to have my motion to dismiss the appeal heard. Um, thereafter, um, I received a, the proposed, the, the record on appeal, and in it, it had late within the document, the stipulation of counsel as to the record on appeal. It has two lines on there with the names of the two parties there, Your Honor. I did not offer And without it. getting into details on, on it, it's at least the Pelley's position that you never agreed to stipulation and settlement of the record on appeal. That's, That's correct. That's at least your contention correct. without dealing with who did, who didn't. That's your contention. And it was appellant's contention that the time had lapsed and that created a stipulation. If, if, if I may, Your Honor, I'm, again, I'll be happy to move on, and if I have additional time to go back to the motion to dismiss, but I really would like to get to the meat of this. Thank and you. that is, Your Honor, in the fact that, um, you know, as Sir Walter Scott said, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That is why we are here today, Your Honors. We are here because Mr. Miller attempted to deceive UPC Insurance. If I may... Um, the trial court dismissed plaintiff's case at summary judgment, making three findings. And those findings were that plaintiff did not comply with the terms of the insurance policy and that plaintiff did not submit to an examination under oath prior to filing a lawsuit. Plaintiff knowingly and willingly submitted a false property damage report to the defendant insurance company. And plaintiff has provided insufficient evidence to show that the defendant participated in unfair and deceptive trade practice. 
With those in mind, I want to walk through the key facts, the timeline of this case, and I think it's important because it addresses each of these. Hurricane Florence came in on September 14th of 2018, and as everyone knows, devastated the coast of North Carolina. Mr. Miller advised UPC on October 3rd that he had damage at his home. Mr. Miller, while he owns three properties in Wilmington, is a Florida resident. On October 3rd, he alerts UPC. By October 6th, UPC has an independent agent out at his home adjusting the loss and then reporting back that to UPC. So that's within three days, a major catastrophe, they have someone out there. Within 10 days of that, they have sent an explanation to Mr. Miller as to the damages that were identified by an independent adjuster, that was TSI, They've identified what those are and have reported to Mr. Miller, Mr. Miller, these items are under your $15,000 deductible. If you disagree, please let us know. That's uh, in the record, Your Honor. I'd... You can find that at, in the exhibits of 1487 through 1489. It's thereafter that Mr. Miller attempts this effort to, as he says in a text to Mr. Hatfield, get money out of the insurance company. He sends a text and he's got four money signs. And it's that when he sends the false estimate. And whatever Miller, Mr. Miller wants to try to describe that as or has to try, attempt to explain it away, it is absolutely clear what he was trying to do was fabricate an estimate from Hatfield, one that Mr. Hatfield in his affidavit said, I didn't authorize, I didn't approve, um, that are not my numbers, that I did not say are accurate. And to say that what he was trying to do was just trying to forward on potential numbers, it's just deceptive. Because that's not the language that's in the affidavit, or in the uh, estimate. In the estimate, it says, HDC, which is Hatfield Development Company, has been asked to prepare a comprehensive remediation and construction budget to return the subject home and property to the condition prior to Hurricane Florence. HDC has prepared the budget. When talking about intent, he's clearly attempting to mislead. This is clearly a misrepresentation. And to point out, as Mr. Hatt let, tried let to point ask out. because that, that's somewhat con concerning to me that it's clear. And, and I think that's what we run into, you know, how proper is it for summary judgment? I, I think there's a lot of ways that you could convince a jury that that's where he was. But does it, does it show at least some indication by CCing Mr. Hatfield on the email Openly, not a blind CC, not anything forwarded to him later. He's on this email chain, if I'm looking at 599 correctly, that he's part of this and therefore at least it's arguable that um, Mr. Miller's intent was if there's something wrong or I've, I've misrepresented something in these numbers that Hatfield's going to correct it. 
First of all, Your Honor, if you see the affidavit from Mr. Hatfield, he says he did not see that email. Right, but, but we're talking about the intent of the plaintiff. Correct. Of what he would have thought. If I send somebody an email, they're probably going to read it. I know not all my emails end up getting read, uh, especially the ones I send to, to my family members. But, um, you know, if I send one in a business context, I assume it's probably going to get read. So if we're, we're focusing on is there a triable issue on Mr. Miller's intent, isn't that enough to meet his burden of production to, to negate what you've put on? And, Your Honor, I'll be happy to get into that because it goes into – the briefs both talk about fraudulent intent and how's that found. But if you go back to what is necessary to determine whether or not someone has violated the policy, it's making the false representation. And the standard is slightly different there in that it's not that you have to have the fraudulent intent that they talk about in the statute. It talks about the need that you must be able to, um, it must have been false. Uh, as, as Judge Gorman pointed out, it was willful that they did so. So the intent, here's the clear intent. As Mr. Hoff pointed out, that estimate is for the debris removal three times higher. And that's clear from the invoice. See, the invoice, the way we know that is because in the course of litigation, I got the invoice that Mr. Hatfield had sent to Mr. Miller, and he provided that to me. And that is two weeks prior to this, at, this estimate that he sends. But reading the background information, and again, I, I'm just taking the light most favorable to, to the party that lost the summary judgment. There's an invoice for stuff done in the background section right after the hurricane. And, you know, clearly just cleaning up some stuff, getting somebody out there quick so you can even access the property or the adjuster even come out. You know, in the light most favorable to the defendant, isn't that very different than removing all the debris eventually in the yard? Because I, I don't think there's any indication here that all the debris had been removed, right? Your Honor, there is nothing in this record that addresses any other de debris removal to be done. The other point that Mr. Hoff didn't make is you'll see that estimate includes the removal of and correction of the retaining wall. Do you see that? If you look at the affidavit of Greg Webb, who was the public adjuster that actually was hired by Mr. Miller and then fired Mr. Miller because Mr. Miller was trying to c c commit insurance fraud, you'll see that Mr. Gregg testifies that that retaining wall was not damaged in the storm. It actually was damaged subsequent to the, subsequent to the storm by people doing uh, work in the yard. So not only do we have that he inflated the debris removal by 10 times, but then we also have in the record where he's trying to get the insurance company to pay for non-storm-related damage. Is there any admission by the plaintiff, though, that that retaining wall was um, injured in another way? Does he ever admit that? That's Mr. Webb's opinion um, based on what was going on and what he was, was analyzing. But does Mr. Miller ever admit that that repair of the retaining wall shouldn't have been included and, and was incorrectly included because it was damaged in another way and he was aware of that? I don't know that there's such an admission, but Mr. Webb was actually on property. He was the public adjuster for Mr. Miller, and then he fired Mr. Miller. If you read his affidavit, Your Honor, which is He definitely thought he was, it was trying to commit insurance fraud, but that's just, just one. And, and again, all these things go to the strength of your potential case. But looking at summary judgment, 
one person's opinion about what's going on, is that enough to show what the intent was or the state of mind was with this document? Your Honor, all those things compound to, and so at summary judgment, yes, I carried the burden of proof to show that there was not a general issue material fact. If he wanted to come up with one of those issues of material fact, he could have. Thank you. But getting back to that issue, Your Honor, is we shouldn't be here. Because as early as February of 2019, once the suspected, um, and let me pick that up. So we get this uh, estimate, or UPC gets this estimate in October. Um, as a result, they sent out a second adjuster, this James Sterrett. He goes out there to the property. He does an inspection, again, not finding all the things that they're talking about, but plaintiff continues to press. They then get wind that potentially this estimate is not accurate. So the UPC hires Walt Rapp, attorney from New Hanover County, who then begins the process of furthering the investigation. Now, Mr. Hoff made the point, at no point did UPC ever change their mind on this. They, they closed their case within 12 days. That's not accurate. Here's what did happen. What happened was is that he sends that estimate. We then reopened to send a second adjuster to come there to look at the home. We then looked further. They hire Walt Rapp, and they hire George Barber, a well-respected engineer who does this for a living out of Wilmington. And he goes and looks at the home. He goes to the home in December and creates a full report that's then published in February that discredits all of the claims that this damage was related. And starting on February 13th, UPC sends a reservation of rights letter to Mr. Miller asking for that examination or oath, asking that he provide additional materials such as photos of the loss prior to any work being done, ask for all those things. And you'll see from the affidavit of Cassie Curtis, who was his personal assistant, she says, I told him about it and he refused. So he refused to do the EUO. He was asked over 20 times to sit down for an EUO and he refused. Now, there's two aspects of this policy that refer to this, the effect of not sitting down for this EUO. The first one is which Mr. Hoff focuses on that talks about the need for the company suffering some prejudice. Then there's the second part. And that says that it is a conditioned precedent to filing suit against UPC that you must comply with Section 1, which includes sitting down for an EUO. Is that suit related to the breach of contract? Or is that phrase been interpreted at any point to also bar an unfair and deceptive trade, trade practices action? I would uh, say separate, because you know, our, our case law is clear, those are separate things. They, they're very intertwined oftentimes, but they are, are separate things. So has there been any interpretation of that language, meaning that you can't sue for unfair and deceptive trade practices to, even if you can't sue for breach of contract. I've seen no case law on that point, Your Honor. The cases that I found on point are the ones that you've already referenced, the Feinberg and the Baker cases. Those are the ones that are on point that talk about the fact that, um, and, and by the way, Your Honor, uh, those two cases are the ones that really should control this decision. And let me point out why. Those are on point. The cases cited by uh, the plaintiff those are third-party claims. If you look at the Great American case, 
That's an auto accident arising from a road construction. So the issue is, is whether or not Tate put Great American on notice of an automobile accident. And by the argument would be as well, if Great American, you're not providing coverage here, then the third party that Tate caused the accident with, they're not going to get, they're not, there's not going to be liability coverage there. And plaintiff relies on, on that Great American Tate case, that uh, North Carolina Supreme Court case often. The one portion they didn't cite from that case is at 399, where it says, anyone who knows that he may be at fault or that others have claimed he is at fault and who purposely and knowingly fails to notify ought not to recover even if no prejudice results. So the plaintiffs are relying upon that case to say, oh, you have to show prejudice in these late notices cases. But that exact case, if you want to find that as controlling, what do we have here? Is that Mr. Miller knowingly, purposely did not attend an EUO even though he knew it was a condition precedent under his policy. It was clear from the letters that were sent on February 13th from UPC, February 22nd from Walt Rapp. He knew he had an obligation under the policy. And according to Cassie Curtis, his personal assistant, according to her affidavit, he knew that he had to do and he wasn't going to do it. So we have the two issues associated with the EUO, the first of which does not require any evidence of prejudice. That's not in the policy. There's no requirement. It's a condition precedent to filing suit. And this court and all courts have upheld condition precedents before suit. We have arbitration clauses that are put in place. We have mediation clauses that are put in place in contracts. And those are regularly upheld. And I will point out, Your Honor, the burden is on the plaintiff. The burden is on the insured to, when they're pursuing coverage to say that they have complied with the condition precedents. So it is actually plaintiff's burden to show that they met this condition precedent when it comes to did they participate in the EUO prior to filing suit. And there's no question that they didn't do so. But even if you were to try to go and follow the argument that you have to have some prejudice, the leading case that plaintiff points out on cooperation says that when they purposely and knowingly fail to notify ought not to recover even if no prejudice results. That's because it's going back to the reasonable expectation clause. Is it a reasonable expectation that if a contract says that you need to provide an EUO and it says you need to do so, is it a reasonable expectation if you purposely avail and don't do it? Is it a reasonable expectation that you should be able to just ignore that and pursue suit? No. So, Your Honors, on with regard to, and again, the Henderson versus Richard uh, Rochester, the McClure, the Bontech, the Branch, you'll note none of those are property coverage cases. Those are all liability policies. This is talking about an insured's responsibilities when they're seeking coverage under the property coverage. And the two cases that you have to, to guide you on that are the Feinberg and Baker cases, which couldn't be any closer to being on point. So the second point, Your Honors, um, moving on from that was uh, on the EUO. We spoke briefly about the um, damage estimate, which the court found to be evidence of his um, willfully 
making the false representations. As I pointed out, not only in the affidavit of Mr. Hatfield does he say, I did not prepare this, these are not my numbers. Plaintiffs did get him to give a declaration thereafter where he said, I gave certain pricing, but nowhere in that declaration does he say the numbers in that affidavit, in that estimate were my numbers. He says, yeah, I talked to him. I might have given him some certain pricing, but nowhere in there does he say that um, he said the home was unhabitable, that he said that these are the numbers, that these are necessary. But doesn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, we've got a large record here, but doesn't plaintiff at some point say these are the numbers that Hatfield gave me or that we worked on together? Not, I just came up with them out of the air and Hatfield didn't say they're not correct. That's what Mr. Miller says. And he in says his, that under oath somewhere, either an affidavit or deposition. Yes, long after suit has been filed. Long after all, Your Honor, I mean, <laughs> this just goes back to the, if, asking about what prejudice did they suffer for not giving the UO. They started asking for it in February. They hired a second adjuster. They hired a lawyer. They hired an engineer, all because he sent that estimate reopening things. They asked for his, his EUO over 20 times over the next seven months. Suits filed. Matter of fact, they didn't even know suit was filed. They were still asking for the EUO after suit was filed. It was until they got served that then they moved on to the litigation. That's the prejudice that happened there. That's the prejudice, that time frame, those efforts that were absolutely unnecessary if he had sat down for an EUO and explained what occurred. The final part of that, Your Honor, that the judge, um, Judge Gore correctly got, was that plaintiff has provided insufficient evidence to show that the defendant participated in unfair and deceptive trade practices. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about all the things they did. I've been doing this for 25 years. This is exactly what you would expect an insurance company to do when presented with a claim. They investigated it. They sent out someone incredibly timely, three days. They then have an, an, a, an explanation of coverage within 10 days. They say, if you have more information, let us know and we'll further investigate. They then get the estimate from Mr. Um, uh, well, proposedly from Mr. Hatfield 10 days later. They send out a new adjuster. They send out an engineer and they continue to investigate and seek examination under oath over the next six months. There was nothing untimely about this. And that's, they claim that the basis for their unfair and deceptive trade practice is that we were untimely and did not report. And then they claim a misrepresentation. But I will give to you, Your Honor, there's not a misrepresentation in this file, in this record. And Judge Gorman was proper in ruling that we have established that we did things right. If you're going to say we did something wrong, the burden shifts. And there was no indication that they were untimely in their investigation as dictated under chapter 58, nor was there any indication that they did not evaluate the claim and pay what was payable. Which again goes to plaintiff um, multiple times said they never changed, they never did anything after closing the file on October uh, I think he says October 18th or 16th. But you'll note in the record, Your Honor, at page uh, 1565, that's not what happened. I'm sorry, it's actually uh, 1566. 
you'll see the check that was, yeah, I'm sorry, 1565. A check was made out to Carl Miller for $5,000. And that's where they paid him for the mold, the extent of the mold coverage on his property. So the statement that we heard multiple times during opening, or during the uh, plaintiff's presentation that they never made any change, as detailed in the letter of February 13 from UPC, where they talked about uh, the investigation that had been done, what they still needed from Mr. Um, Miller, they also then indicated that they'd be making payment to him, and they did so. They did pay him additional $5,000 in March of 2019. So with that said, Your Honor, I'd ask that this court uphold the granting of summary judgment um, by Judge Gorham and uh, dismiss the plaintiff's claims against him. Thank you. We've got about three minutes left. Uh, we'll just kind of give a little bit over that, but uh, and then if anybody's got further questions, we'll, we'll go with that. Thank you, Your Honors. I'll be, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll be very brief. Uh, with regards to the record settlement, um, UPC sent uh, objections and amendments to the record on appeal. Um, I complied with every single request that they had. We had several discussions about it. Um, the record was settled. Um, I think. Mr. Darren Bacher was unhappy that he hadn't been able to get his motion to dismiss the appeal heard in the trial court, which, as he mentioned, I wasn't directly involved in. Um, you know, there, there's really, as to the substance of the record on appeal, um, he raises in his um, motion that there was, I believe it's the notice of appeal that he had asked to be moved to the record supplement, which I did, but then he had asked that his motion to dismiss the appeal in the trial court and all of the exhibits be included in the record on appeal, which I included. And then he, in his motion to dismiss the appeal in this court, argues that it was improper to include the notice of appeal in the record, but it's included as one of the exhibits to his motion to dismiss the appeal that was filed in the trial court. So there's no substantive issue as to whether anything that was submitted in the record on appeal was not complete we discussed it several times. We were in agreement. I thought I filed the record on appeal as I typically do in, in appeals uh, before this court. And um, this is the first time I've ever had someone um, had, had this issue arise. So um, I'm not aware of any substantive differences in what was filed versus what was requested um, be changed from the initial proposed record on appeal. Um, with regards to the uh, second adjuster that went out, James Starrett, um, who Mr. Derenbacher said didn't find anything, um, there's a claims note on the record supplement, page 26, where Mr. Starrett says uh, there were a few things that were missed by the in initial inspection. Uh, he found mold in the ductwork in two separate areas, which makes the dwelling not habitable for the time it takes to do the mold remediation. The insured also has damage to the sewage system from a felled tree that was removed before we had a chance. And then it cuts off. Uh, that's an entry for November 9th, 2018, which was shortly after um, the hurricane and, and after the claim was filed. Um, Mr. Uh, Derenbacher said that uh, Mr. Hatfield doesn't say anything um, about, um, says that uh, these aren't my numbers um, and that the home was not inhabitable. Um, but he also says in the affidavit that was submitted 
from Mr. Miller that he did give Mr. Miller some numbers. He never equivocally says that the numbers that were included in the estimate are wrong. And um, he also says in the affidavit on behalf of Mr. Miller, which I believe is at pages just one and two of the documentary exhibits, that um, he didn't inspect the roof or the ductwork, and depending on what that inspection might have revealed, that the home might not have been habitable. Um, and um, I, I would just further point out that the Hatfield estimate, um, in addition to copying uh, Mr. Hatfield on the email, it came from Mr. Miller uh, rather than Mr. Hatfield initially. Um, so if the court doesn't have any further questions, um, I would ask that the, the um, order granting summary judgment to, to UPC be reversed. There are lots of questions about the weight of the evidence here and this case should be tried before a jury and um, this court should remain with instructions that a um, prejudice requirement be imposed with regards to the EUO requirement. Thank you very much. Thanks, sir. Thank you both for your arguments and we'll consider this case submitted. Um, we'll take another uh, five, 10 minutes and come back with Harnett County versus Retirement System 22750.